as uh, similar events have happened in other cities. And we know this, is that God is not silent in the midst of tragedies and the injustices and, and the wounds and the brokenness that cities and people are facing. So what does he call the church to in such occasions like this? Jeremiah 29 tells us that we are to be a people that pray and seek the peace and the prosperity of the city that he's called us to. Uh, and Micah, God says, this is what's required of us, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And so we've been, uh, we've been seeking to apply that this week. So on Wednesday, we went and, and went to City Hall and just, as a small group of uh, leaders, just prayed there for the issues, uh, prayed for the family, uh, prayed for our government and our, the police and for justice and and we went to New Song uh, over in Santan, and we prayed with the leadership there, which is in the center of the storm. Uh, and we continued to pray, and we had a prayer meeting Thursday night. And so that's what we'll continue to do, but uh, as we thought about whether we should take a break from this series, we, our sense was, was that you know, every single passage of the scriptures speak about Jesus, who is the answer and the solution to life's greatest needs and the city's greatest desires. And so we felt like we should continue in the series on Ruth. You know, one of the things that Jeremiah 29 talks about how a people is to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city, uh, he commands the people to settle down, to build homes, to plant, and to marry, and to give your sons and daughters in marriage. Uh, the God of the scriptures he responds to the crisis events, but he also seeks a people who are settling in and anchoring in and being a presence of grace and justice and mercy on a, as a lifestyle. Uh, what we find here in the third chapter of, Luth, of Ruth is a movement uh, towards settling down. Uh, so we see uh, God orchestrating this relationship between this Moabite, widow, impoverished, outcast woman to a rich Israelite landowner who, as a couple, uh, would become the great-great-great-grandparents of Jesus Christ. And so in this third chapter, things are heating up, as it were. Let's continue in Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with who, whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And he replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, 
Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held, out, held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> so here in the third chapter of Ruth, and there's four chapters of Ruth, here in the third chapter of Ruth is what's been called in literature the axis verse. This is the climactic pinnacle uh, verse where everything is moving towards in terms of tension, and then from this verse, all the resolutions flow. And what is that verse? It is verse 9. Verse 9. Uh, the Ruth's response to the trembling, startled Boaz, who was shocked, awakened, uh, to find this woman lying uh, at his cold feet. You know, she takes the blanket off of his feet so that in time he would feel his cold feet and wake up to cover his feet, and then all of a sudden he finds this young lady. Who are you? He replies, and she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, we don't know how long the pause was uh, between uh, Ruth's words and Boaz's response uh, to this very forward, uh, all-out Moabite widow that's laying at his feet. But the whole book of Ruth rises and falls on this marriage proposal. It is really a great love story. It's the kind of thing that many desperately uh, want to find today, and many have given up trying to find such love. The former uh, Saturday Night Live writer and present advice columnist uh, from Ellie Magazine, Jean Carroll, felt it was her responsibility to solve the problems of America's jaded and terminally shy, lonely hearts. So she published a book about man-catching tips titled, Mr. Right, Right Now, How a Smart Woman Can Land Her Dream Man in Six Weeks. And it's a practical guide uh, to help uh, women catch a date, at least in six weeks, or a great date, possibly, 
However, the underlying problem with the book is that the author herself has already gone through two divorces and she still is trying to find the right man. Now, Pastor Stan revealed to us a few weeks ago that there's a large percentage of unmarried adults who feel that marriage is really becoming obsolete and that in many ways uh, cohabitation is replacing uh, marriage. A USA article said, for today's young adults, the first generation to come of age during the divorce revolution, living together seems like a good way to achieve the benefits of marriage without the risk of divorce. But, you know, a lot of uh, young women who enter into those relationships uh, will tell you that they feel like they're on perpetual audition because they're interested ultimately in a commitment and it's hard to find the man who will commit. And some of you know that story. And so there's many challenges today in the movement towards marriage or a commitment in marriage. Uh, and even the marriages that exist today, uh, we have many, many struggles, uh, as many of you might know. And I went with Maria some years ago to a marriage renewal. It was a 20-year uh, marriage renewal celebration. And there was a ceremony. And in that ceremony, the, the wife turns to the husband and says, if I had to marry you over again, I would marry you again. And then she says, and if I had to, if I lived my life over a thousand times, I would still choose to marry you. And so I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. That's a pretty fervent love, you know. And so after the ceremony, I, I asked Maria, I said, Maria, you know, if you, you know, lived your life over again, you know, would you still marry me? Would you choose to marry me? And I didn't let, I didn't, you know, let her get my space. I said, and if there was a thousand times, if you lived your life a thousand times over, would you still choose to marry me? And there was this, like, awkward silence. <laughs> and after a while, she eventually responded. She says, I just feel tired thinking about it. <laughs> now, we, marriage is challenging today. And a movement towards marriage and commitment and relationships, th these are hard things. We live in challenging times for marriages. We live in challenging times for singles who are looking for that right partner. Uh, and for those marriages who thought they found the right partner, the quest for true love often ends in a nightmare for so many. And many of us have experienced this pain in our own childhoods and seeing our own parents in their marriage failures. And many of us in this room know very personally the agony of relationships and broken dreams. And so how do we address such wounds and longings for a radical love, a radical love relationship between a man and a woman and a lifelong companionship that we are called to in marriage? Well, I believe that Ruth 3 gives us some clues and it gives us some clarity as we see God orchestrating uh, this meeting between these two obscure people. And I believe that Ruth 3 presents for us uh, this good pursuit. Uh, we find the affirmation of the pursuit, we find the character in the pursuit, and we find the assurance of the pursuit. Naomi, uh, the mother-in-law, says to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? In other words, 
Naomi is, te- is telling Ruth, Ruth, shouldn't I find a man for you? <laughs> I mean, that's what she is saying here. She's saying, and, and, and the word rest or to home, ultimately it's about marriage. Shouldn't I find a situation where you're provided for? You know, that was, the, that was what this is encouraging here. And, you know, it's interesting that the first verse opens up with Naomi wanting to find rest for Ruth. And at the last verse of this passage, what we find is Boaz. Naomi says, Boaz will not rest until this matter is settled today. So there's a lot of restlessness in Bethlehem. And so we find, in spite of the disappointments and the restlessness and the failures, uh, marriage is important. Uh, marriage is a good thing. Proverbs 18, 22 says, He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. Uh, Finds what is good, what is excellent, what is beautiful, and receives blessing and delight from the Lord. Of course, I think that Ruth 3 would also tell us she who finds a husband finds a good thing. And uh, so here we find that Naomi is giving Ruth counsel about Boaz. Uh, you know, maybe uh, Boaz really wasn't on Ruth's radar her man radar, you know. Obviously, he was significantly older. Uh, She didn't even presume such. But Naomi is calculating. She's assessing. She recognizes the character of this man. She recognizes that he also is a relative, which means that he can fulfill a particular role in their relationship that that, uh, would not be the norm for others. And so she's putting... Boaz on her radar, and then she's, so she talks about the right man, and then she talks about the right timing. Well, isn't there a, uh, a winnowing barley tonight on the threshing floor? This is the end of harvest season, and so this has been a time where Ruth has been out in the fields gleaning from the barley and the wheat, and now this is at the end, and it seems like of all times, this is a happy time. This is a good time to present yourself. And so it's a strategic time, and she tells her to wash and anoint herself and to put on the cloak. And, uh, you know, so she's, pre- she's basically preparing herself to be known to Boaz. You know, there's a question here about what's the role of men in relationships and what's the role of women and as a norm, you, women, you, you I, I mean, at least I have four daughters. This is what I know, and a wife. That women want a strong man who is an initiator, who leads. They want someone who will initiate uh, engagements of love and affection and kindness, who think ahead. They don't want to just sit back and have a passive man. Uh, but... What we find here is Boaz was this older guy who was not really presuming that Ruth was eligible for him. You know, she, he wouldn't presume that. And so Naomi says, you need to put yourself in the way so that he recognizes that you are eligible. And so she's counseling him. She's coaching him or her 
towards this engagement and to wash and anoint yourself. It could, you know, the issue of makeup and how you how how people prepare themselves. There's old old Southern preacher Vernon McGee said something about if the barn needs painting, paint it. I'm not all sure what he was talking about, but here's here is here is Ruth who is presenting herself before Boaz as a candidate for marriage. You know, the whole courtship process is quite, you know, we don't know all the particulars of courtship in this culture. Uh, we do know that often uh, the parents, the father, would arrange marriages. You know, in the Indian culture with Gandhi, Gandhi was arranged in his marriage at 13 years old. Uh, our culture tends to revolve around emotionally charged dating, going steady, courting, cohabitating, and then towards marriage. That is really kind of our, our custom is that's becoming normative today. But whatever the uh, courting process was, it was very clear when, uh, when Ruth said these words to Boaz, spread your wings over me. She was telling Boaz to marry me. Marry me. Uh, and in essence, you know, be my man, sustain me, be my protector, have my babies. <laughs> Marry me. And she's actually commanding him in this. This uh, <clears throat> was a very uh, determined woman. She was risking everything. But John Perkins said, Ruth went to the work in the field, and she ends up owning the whole field. That's an interesting thing. You know, she's gleaning you know, as a poor person on the edges of the field. And within, what, months, she gets married, and now she owns that field. <laughs> That's a pretty remarkable transformation. Uh, what, what we see here is Naomi is providing counsel and encouragement to Ruth. You know, we need, we need counsel around us. We need older, wiser, spiritual parenting to help navigate our relationships. And that's what one of the things the body of Christ should be about, by the way. And we should be a place where, where maybe you haven't had spiritual parenting or spiritual guidance. The church needs to be a place. You know, Jesus says that, uh, that anyone who has left fathers and mothers to follow him will have other fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, multiple so you've entered into a big family, and there's people that love you and will care for you and provide spiritual counsel. When a person, a couple, wants to get married, uh, we have a process where we, we, we help people get premarital counseling. We sit down with them, and we, we talk about their life histories and their family histories, and we talk about uh, communication aspects and finance, and we talk about in-law relationships and and, and role relationships, we, we want to make sure that couples really get all that they can to have a strong foundation when they get married. I've had a couple, uh, I, over the course of my pastorate, I've had three couples come to me, and they wanted me to marry them within two weeks. And I sat, I said, I would really like to be able to do that, but, you know, marriage is such a big commitment, and I really feel like I need to feel comfortable that your relationship has got the strength that it needs, and I need more time with you. You know, usually it's about six sessions or whatever. And uh, they said, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm, you know, we'll find someone else who else. Okay. All three of those 
uh, marriages, they did, they did get married, they all ended in divorce. You know, there's so many challenges with marriages. We need good counsel. What we see here is that um, Naomi is providing very good and strong counsel to, to, uh, to Ruth. But we also see the character in the pursuit. At midnight, the man was startled. He turns over, and behold, a woman's at his feet. And, uh, you know, here's, this is a very risk-taking venture that Ruth has done here. And this is really because she is secure in her relationship with her God. She's, she's recognized that God's been faithful to her and to uh, Naomi over this time in this whole journey. She has witnessed God's provision even in the midst of great losses. And she's willing to risk everything to follow Naomi's counsel and to do this really rather bold, audacious, crazy thing of laying at the feet of Boaz at night on the threshing floor. Uh, so it is quite a uh, quite a audacious plan. Uh, Paul Miller said she's a Moabite. Mo- Boaz is an Israelite. She's a woman propositioning a man, a servant asking a landowner, a poor entreating a wealthy one, a young woman approaching a middle-aged man. Yet Ruth was ready and willing to to, uh, to uh, that bold and risk it all. A love is a risky business. C.S. Lewis said, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. And so uh, it's important for us as the body to, to step out and to be bold in faith engagements, whether it's in our relationships or in, in life, uh, to, be, to recognize that you know, God's a God who loves faith engagements. He wants us to step out beyond what might feel comfortable, and it might feel very scary. Um, you know, some, sometimes couples get in relationships, and there's ambiguity, uh, and it just kind of keeps going on and on. And the woman is wondering, what's his intention? Uh, well, just ask him, what are your intentions? Is this going someplace? Are we moving towards marriage? Or is this just a nice friendship? And it might feel uncomfortable, but, you know, clarity is a good thing. And you can risk that because you are loved by a God who has a hope and a future for you. So we find this, uh, this risk-taking faith, but we also find uh, a kingdom-seeking heart. And Boaz uh, responds to Ruth the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. And he's, he's, when he says kindness, that is that same word, hesit love. This love, this faithful, stubborn love that you have demonstrated to your mother-in-law, what you're doing here is beyond that. Uh, you have not gone after the younger men, and the, whether rich or poor. You have decided that you're going to seek to a relationship that is going to f- provide for you, but provide for Naomi and to continue the lineage, the name of your dead husband, okay? Malon is, was her, her dead husband, and one of the great values in Hebrew culture was carrying on the name of the dead spouse. And the redeemer that she's asking for from Boaz, he's, she's asking him to be that redeemer. 
to carry on that name, that name of that, that child will have his name, the, the hus that husband's name attached. That's, that's kind of some crazy stuff. But what we find here is that Ruth is thinking beyond just her own self-interest. She has anchored herself into the values of the kingdom of God. And that is passionate engagement for her God. And Boaz is responding to that. Boaz is, a, is really celebrating in the kind of character that Ruth has demonstrated. Uh, Proverbs 31, charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And Ruth really exhibits that, that character. But we also find the character of sexual integrity. And so in verse 14 it says, So she lay at his feet until morning, but rose before one could recognize another. Let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And here's Boaz, you know, this rich landowner. And here's this young woman at night laying at his feet who's been very forward. I mean, he could have easily taken advantage of her. But he protected her. He honored her. Uh, he wanted to wait until marriage. He wasn't interested in just an immediate impulse for sexual intimacy. You know, in the traditional culture, uh, a traditional culture like in the Hebrew culture, a young woman's purity was like a precious jewel. A young woman who would only offer herself sexually when a man had committed himself publicly in this hesed or this commitment, devoted, stubborn, uh, uh, love without an exit strategy, marriage. So sexual intimacy was not a path to love. It was not to prove one's love. It was the seal of love. It was love proven through marriage covenant, and sexual intimacy became a covenant blessing. But of course, in ancient Near East cultures of that day, sex outside of marriage was a very common thing. Uh, fertility rights was very common. Uh, so people did not believe that sexual uh, relations were reserved for marriage. And that is pretty much common for us today, is it not? I mean, sexual engagements uh, outside are very ubiquitous. I go to body pump at the Y, and I hear the song, you know, bang, bang into the room, I want, I want, I want you to know it, or something. And uh, we have the movies Fifty Shades of Grey, and uh, Sex in the City, I'm your baby tonight, and you know, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. We live in a hookup culture. But here's the deal. You know, people, all of us are wounded sexual beings. Uh, but we're created, you know, more than just being a sexual being. We are image bearers of God. And he has made us with this gift, and it only works within the context that he's designed it for. And so, but we see this sexual tension in this passage, do we not? You know, go down to the threshing floor, uncover Boaz's feet, lie down. I mean, these are all hypercharged sexual connotations. You know, the Hebrews were not prudes when it came to sexuality. At a Hebrew wedding, there was this great celebration. It often went on a week, but they had this tent out in the middle of the party. And after the 
after the wedding ceremony, the couple went into this tent in the midst of all this celebration. They consummated their marriage. And this is, you know, celebrating that gift. Uh, it was a gift of God, and God made it very good. Uh, there's a book that I've heard a friend of mine has called God Loves Sex, an honest conversation about sexual desire and holiness by Anna Allender and Longman. That's a pretty enticing title, is it not? God Loves Sex. And <laughs> Anyhow, he made it, and it's good. At the end of Genesis 1, he says it's very good. Anyhow, that book is on my wife's table, but I did get permission. I haven't read it yet, but I, I will. Tim Keller said this, Sex is not just what about self-gratification or self-expression. It was designed to do radical self-donation. Sex was God's invented way to give oneself to another so deeply that it involves personal transformation. So physical oneness is connected to whole life oneness. And so we see this character of both Boaz and Ruth in their guarding, their, the character of sexual integrity, the character of risk-taking faith. Uh, and then we see the assurance for the pursuit. And it says, Boaz tells Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how, to, how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so here's the picture. Boaz is now determined to make good on his commitment. And one of the things he does is that he takes her cloak, and she it must have been a rather large uh, you know, kind of coat. He fills it with six measures of barley. Now, six measures of barley would have been about 88 pounds. That's huge. This was a very strong woman. She's got this humongous cloak filled with barley, and she goes back to Naomi. Now, that virtually was her engagement ring. That was a huge investment, by the way. And, you know, he's, he's basically making a promise to her, and he's giving her this wealth as a kind of a down payment, as it were, that he's going to follow through with this. And, of course, here Ruth comes home with this huge, this gift uh, with her, and Naomi is wondering what's going on, what's happened, and Ruth tells her. Um, you know, it's interesting. The opening of Ruth be opens with this aspect that Naomi left Bethlehem full, but she comes back empty. You might remember that. But now here it is that Naomi has become full. You know, and this is often the way it is in life. We often have a lot of death. There's often a lot of loss. But the ultimate part of the gospel is that there's a resurrection, and there is a fullness that God wants uh, to, and that is the movement of history. You know, I know as I'm speaking that many have felt the brokenness of, of dreams through broken relationships. Uh, we have felt the brokenness in our own sexuality. And we might feel rather empty. Uh, we might feel rather empty even in our present uh, marriages, in our and our present singleness and our yearnings. There was a woman who came uh, to uh, 
Paul Miller's prayer seminar. A 40-year-old, nice-looking woman, he said, that was in a business suit, and she was a successful business lady. Uh, and she shared with him that and her heart was just broken uh, because she's feeling so lonely as a single person. And she said to him, I have bloodied my hands banging on heaven's doors for a man, for a husband to love me. And he said he knew what he needed to tell her. He says, you need to die to your dream. You need to die to that dream. Uh, And God often calls us to die to our dreams. God doesn't want any particular dream that we have on this earth to become an idol that subordinates the bigger dream. And he knew that he needed to tell her that so that she could be released and that she could hopefully find fulfillment in God. And as God would lead, he would, he would provide that yearning. But anytime we make marriage or a mate something bigger than it's supposed to be, uh, it won't satisfy us. It will not fulfill us. And so this story of Ruth and Boaz is about a bigger story, a greater story. Uh, it's about a sacred romance that is a bigger story. It is not about, it is about a true love, not about a perfect uh, situation. So there's a movement towards this great marriage. Our lives are really not about the pursuit of per- perfect lives or perfect dreams here. It's about the pursuit of a perfect lover who comes after us, uh, who has, is our redeemer, that Jesus has sacrificed it all for us that we might experience uh, an eternal love. And so what we see is that this passage is really a movement towards an ultimate destiny. This marriage is just a foretaste, a foreshadowing of a greater marriage. And what we find, uh, as we heard from the passage in Revelation, of the bride coming down out of heaven, we find that God has determined to unite and bind himself to his people, sinners that he has redeemed to be a perfect bride. And Isaiah tells us that as a young man marries a maiden, so will your sons marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Do you realize that you have a God that rejoices over you, that sings over you with love, that he is crazy, mad, in love with you? That is the constant theme of the scriptures. It is really a remarkable thing. And so we must never lose sight of the bigger picture and the bigger movement. And because it is that movement, is that bigger picture that gives us the character that strengthens us to be the kind of people that stay in the trenches, that do hard relationships, that seek to show forth a greater love that that exists in the world. Uh, So yesterday I went to uh, a conference as we end, uh, John Perkins, who is the, we consider him the, the father of Christian community development, which is about uh, connecting uh, communities, under-resourced communities in a reconciling way. And, and uh, he's so much about the foundation of this church. And he's 85 years old. He's been married for over 65 years. Uh, and he spoke at this conference yesterday, and he ended it uh, with a poem of Maya Angelou, um, about the uh, why does the cage bird sing? And that 
that poem that she wrote is really a contrasting between this free bird and a caged bird. And the free bird is the one who flies and is free and has big worms. And, and then the caged bird is, is contained. And he's often dealing with, with the injustice of race relations. But he said, he said there, he sees himself as this caged bird. And he said, that's me. John Perkins said, that's me. I want to fly. I want to fly, but I'm caged because my people are caged, killing each other. Violence, the human race is caged, killing each other. He said, my African people are caged with genocide. The Northern Ireland people are caged, killing each other. I want to fly. He said, I almost flew when I left Mississippi when I came to Jesus Christ. I thought I was free, but my people were dying back in Mississippi. But I came back and I got into the cage with them. I'm going to be in that cage until I die. I'm still singing, so... I'm still singing this so-called old Negro hymn, I want to fly from this earth, but in a few days, I'm going to fly away some bright day when this life is over. I'm going to stay in this cage. I'm going to fly. I'll fly away in the morning when I die. Hallelujah, by and by. That is what the church is promised. When we hear his voice, we are going to fly away with him. But in the meantime, I want to be faithful. They were his last words. In the meantime, I want to be faithful. The reason, brothers and sisters, that you can be faithful in the hard trenches of life is because you have a groom who is madly in love with you, who has promised you a hope in the future, who has become your redeemer and will take you to glory. But until then, let's stay and be faithful to this God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you give us passages like Ruth that, that shape us uh, uh, concerning a bigger vision. Lord, we pray that you would help strengthen us in our relationships, that God, there are so many wounds I know that are just coming forth in just working through this passage. I know there's so many broken dreams and wounded hearts and yearning, longing hearts. God, I pray that you would be present and comforting and, and strengthening your people. God, help us to be a family that supports each other in this journey. Help us to be an encouragement in our commitments to one another and into this community in Penlucic and into Baltimore and the world. God, would you help us through your spirit? We thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Here's the benediction. I'm going to give you a benediction. You know, what, you know what a benediction is? A benediction is a blessing, and it's not my blessing to you. I'm just a vessel. It is God's blessing to you. And now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you could ask or do, according to his power that is at work within you, to him be the glory and in the church both now and forevermore. Amen.